Good morning, this is Randy Brunson with Centurion Advisory Group here for another episode of the Stewarding Family Wealth Podcast uh, brought to you by Centurion Advisory Group, a, uh, an Atlanta-based or Gwinnett County-based independent family wealth management firm. With me in the studio today is Charlie Revis. Uh, over the last several years, over the last several years, Okay. Over the last several months, we have been talking about some of the principles of handling cash flow and money. And the fifth of those principles is a choice on our part to be generous with our time, our talent, and our treasure. And I've known Charlie for about 30 years. And of all the people that I've met, he is an absolute case study in how to live generously and to be generous with your time, your talent, and your treasure. Charlie, glad you're with us today. Thanks, Randy. Pleasure to be here. Good, good, good. Well, uh, Charlie, you and I have known each other, like I said, for 30 years. Um, had so many conversations, but um, to listeners hearing you for the first time, your voice might sound a little different. So just we're going to talk about this more in the second episode, but give us 30 seconds on the story. Sure. Uh, I have a uh, neurological uh, voice condition. It's a rare voice condition that's uh, called spasmodic dysphonia. And what happens is the signals coming into the muscles that control uh, my vocal folds actually spasm. So it causes my voice at times to sound strangled or clipped. Some uh, some vowels I may be able I may clip a little bit, so it it primarily sounds a bit strangled. Uh, it's the is what you hear in the voice, and um, as I said, it's um, a rare voice condition. We know very little, little um, about the cause, and unfortunately, uh, the treatments for it are pretty limited. Okay. Good. Well, thank you, and we will. I I do want to learn more about that and what's going on with medical research and some of those kinds of things. But, uh, you know, I've talked about so many things over the years. Uh, You grew up in Cherokee County, Georgia, okay? Right. In uh, sometimes the way I describe it, in a time and place that does not exist anymore. (laughs) (laughs) That's true. That makes sense. Uh, And I've heard you talk about your grandfather that owned the the store, the store itself, the building is still there. Correct. Uh, it's just uh, about a mile down the street from uh, Creekview High School up in Cherokee <laughs> County. But um, just share with us anything you want to share with you uh, with us about your uh, about your growing up years, uh, what you learned from your grandfather about life and money and business, and just tell us a story. Sure. It was uh, it was an interesting time uh, and. Uh, Growing up uh, basically next door to my grandparents, <coughs> and, and my granddad had uh, a country store that served pretty much the community in the area where we lived. And he was also a farmer, uh, happened to drive the school bus and uh, be one of the leaders in the church and uh, all of those uh, types of activities. So growing up uh, as, a, as a kid, I saw him involved in all of those things, and I became, at a very early age, interested and really a bit fascinated with the store and the business of the store, how he operated it, how he dealt with people. Uh, So 
every time I had an opportunity, and many times my mom would remind me that uh, I took opportunities to spend time with granddad in the store. And uh, so it was, it was a fantastic learning experience, uh, literally a, a hands-on growing experience from standpoint of really creating my interest in business and I learned so much from him, uh, just personal values, life values that have, have carried me forward uh, throughout my life. And uh, granddad always, he, he had so many sayings or, or teachings that he would uh, talk about, <clears throat> uh, always be a man of your word. And he, he would remind me that Hey, if you borrow something from someone, whether it be money, a tool, or what else, then you tell the person that you're going to repay, you're going to return it, do so. Be a man of your word. And he had uh, maybe sometimes, I know my mom and her, my two uncles would uh, <coughs> chat with granddad from time to time about perhaps he was a little too generous with some people who at a particular point didn't have the money to pay for what their purchases were and granddad would always say well you know i want to help them as much as i can because at some point i might need them to help me and he always believed that whatever he did to help people was going to come back to him uh, many times over uh, at some point in his life and i think that's i think that's very true and uh, I remember I had so many uh, instances, but he would buy a lot of the products that he sold uh, in the country store from a wholesale uh, company. And I would go with him <coughs> to, uh, to purchase the, the products, and many times uh, he would place a standing order for certain types of products. And occasionally... Uh, and he knew the gentleman that uh, ran the wholesale business very well. And occasionally he would tell granddad that, hey, I got a little better price on this, these products here. If you want to buy instead of three cases, five cases, I can actually uh, give you a little, little price discount here. So, so many times we'd get uh, back into the old truck and heading back home. And granddad would talk about, he said, okay, now remember, <coughs> he helped us, so we got a little better price here, so it's up to us to share some of that with the people we sell it to. So he would reduce the price a bit, uh, and then he'd keep a couple of pennies, and, uh, but that was his philosophy in life, is that, hey, you know, I got a good deal, so I'll pass it along to somebody else and uh, I think there's just there's so many of those uh, lessons uh, uh, over the years thinking about uh, growing up that that really stuck with me and uh, he was he was a stickler for <coughs> uh, not doing credit he had a strong belief that uh, hey if you, if you can't afford to pay for it, you can't afford it. And, uh, but, you know, there were times when you'd have to uh, 
kind of work out an arrangement uh, for particular products he was selling in the store. And, uh, but his, his message, uh, and he, he, he lived this, that, okay, then I owe that debt first and foremost. Yeah. That gets paid no matter what. And, again, it's one of those lessons that uh, has stuck with me over the years. And I guess it's part of why uh, my wife uh, tells me sometimes that uh, maybe I'm too frugal at, at uh, certain points as, as uh, she and I have uh, uh, certainly had a lot of experiences over the 50-plus 50, 50 years that uh, she and I have been married. But uh, but those are, those are just a couple of the the lessons that come to mind yeah uh, so you know uh, listening to your talk i was there uh, i remember reading something that john maxwell wrote he pr- he may have learned it from your grandfather but this the thought about <laughs> about sowing seeds rather than always looking for a harvest is just to choose to sow seeds of kindness and generosity and help where you can and knowing that knowing that it always comes back and uh being good for your word um and, and the story about okay we got a we got a good deal on these products we're going to pass this along so when you experience something positive share that share that along the way some, right. of, the, some of those kind of things the um out of out of high school you went to what at the time was southern polytech is that right right correct Southern Polytech. From there, you went to work for I think it was West at the time. It was Western Electric. Western Electric. That's right. Okay, yep. trained as an engineer. Yep. Works as an engineer. You've told me a st- it's been a while since you've told this story. I'd love to hear the story again. But uh, this was I guess early '60s. You were uh, you needed a car. Need to buy a car. Um, tell tell that story. And I like that story. Okay, good. That's, uh, <coughs> yeah, jog my memory a little bit. And there's just a little bit of a uh, uh, story behind the story, if you will, in the sense that it comes back to, uh, hey, if you can't afford to pay for something, then you can't afford it. Right. So I worked uh, summer jobs during high school to save some money when I started college because I needed a car. So uh, I ended up financing uh, some portion of the purchase. I don't remember the amount, but uh, so <clears throat> again, uh, the uh, the lessons from Granddad came back. Hey, you pay that first and foremost. That was it. No matter what, every month when my paycheck came, and then we'll talk a little bit more about another another one of his philosophies was that you always pay yourself too. So, uh, but with the car, uh, I would double up occasionally on my payments because again I had this ingrained I didn't like having the debt I wanted to pay this thing and so I could I could have more money to decide what I want to do after I paid myself so uh, at the point when I when I paid off the loan it just occurred to me that hey you know this money is coming out of my pocket every month anyway so I've been doing okay without it so I'll just turn it into the and I had the the, um, the loan was with the uh, credit union Telco Credit Union that we had as part of the Bell system. Okay. So uh, I had already set up uh, a savings account with the credit union. So at any rate, when I paid off the car loan, 
I just let that amount continue to go into my savings account every month. So, so, uh, that, and that's the part I remember. Uh, so, so once you you got the car paid off, then whatever that amount was, you just had them go ahead and take that money and set it right over in the savings account because, you know, you and I probably both over our lives and in conversation with people heard, you know, they're covered up with debt or they have a car payment. And what's always intrigued me is. Um, those people who can find money for a car payment but once it's paid paid for they cannot figure out how to take that same one two three four five hundred dollars eight hundred dollars whatever the numbers are okay and set it aside so that they when they're ready for the next act car right, right. they've got a down payment or they got the purchase price or something and it's just a matter of having this one but you did that and two other things come to mind you the, the, there's a phrase called short accounts mm-hmm. and so your your granddaughter was a, a big fan of of uh, keeping short accounts financially and just what i've heard you talk about just now and in times past probably also a fan of keeping short accounts relationally as well oh you yeah know? and uh, where like he, he would um that store was at a a time and place that he had the opportunity to extend credit to some of the local folks and everybody knew who everybody was and he had a good handle on you know those kind of things but um i've always remembered that story about the car and so you went to work in the bill system Mm-hmm. I remember you telling me one time that uh, over your career, and then you retired in 2001? Uh, actually, 2000? Uh, about 2002, I guess it was. About 2002, okay. And so I, I re- remember you described it as six different employers, one pension plan or something like that. Because <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you, were, you were right there doing all this massive growth and then the antitrust lawsuits, the breaking up of the bell system in the early 80s, right, and, right. and then the reconsolidation, just so many changes throughout the, uh, the telecom world over your career. And yeah, it, w- it was a fascinating career uh, <clears throat> in, in telecommunications. I actually, at the time I retired, I had spent time uh, in five different decades with the Bell System. Okay. So, and I actually started with Western Electric. And then the government broke up uh, the, um, the Bell System uh, in, uh, I guess it was 84 when they did the, the big telecom act. Yeah. So the portion that was essentially Western Electric and Bell Labs became part of AT&T. So um, we operated then, and we're at the time I was in uh, up in Massachusetts at our factory at uh, was called Merrimack Valley, and it was interesting that okay we literally changed companies but didn't change an office even. So, uh, but there were separations that they forced us to do, uh, depending on um, exactly which portion of that factory that uh, ended up specifically as part of one company or another. So uh, one of the things that, uh, that I always remember, and I think that the point you were making earlier is then in, in uh, 1996-97, <coughs> the portion of AT&T that was Western Electric and Bell Labs was spun out into Lucent Technologies. Mm-hmm. That's right. So uh, then we were Lucent Technologies uh, up until uh, 
the portion of the business or the a part of the business where I was, we sold it off in 2001, I think, uh, to um, to a Japanese company, and it's uh, still in business, still operating. But again, it was interesting over those years to to change companies, and most time, not change offices. And uh, so I swear I've made the comment that I worked for all these different companies, but I never changed my office. And, uh, <laughs> That's pretty much the journey. Yeah. yeah. Just before we went on the air, you were talking about um, you, you went to work in the, in the bell system. Five years you went into management. And, and you know, over, over the time that we've known each other, I've, I've just known you as being just – Generous, you know the things you learn from your granddad. Choose, choose to pay it forward, to give, to share it, of whatever you know, mm-hmm. your experience, your dollars, whatever it is. Um, what did that look like on the uh, in, in the Bell system? I mean, they were they were uh, uh, had a good working relationship with the United Way. Yeah, yeah, it was. Uh, I, I remember early on <coughs> uh, when I first started working, uh, we we always had a March of Dimes campaign. Okay. Uh, but the big one was uh, United Way campaign every year. Okay. And regardless of where I was located around the country uh, in the business, either uh, whether it's Western Electric, AT&T, uh, whatever, Lucent, uh, we had uh, the, the annual uh, United Way campaign. So we always had uh, people who coordinated maybe in their particular departments or their particular branch. Uh, and that's part of what was expected uh, in the Bell system, that you got involved in those campaigns um, as basically part of your training. And so it was something that pretty much came natural to me. So I was always involved in the campaigns all over the country and, in fact, uh, sat on the, the board of United Way in, uh, matter of fact, in different parts of the country where I might have been located at a particular time. And, for example, here in Atlanta, uh, I served on the uh, Metro Atlanta United Way board of directors for several years. Okay. And it was, uh, yeah, it was a great experience. Uh, it's a great organization, and uh, they do just fantastic work uh, helping Essentially, how United Way works is more like an, an umbrella organization that actually doles out grants and money to help smaller nonprofit groups uh, because then they're closer to the people who actually need the help. Right. So uh, it was, uh, again, uh, something that, uh, back to my granddad's uh, teachings, was treat people the way you want to be treated. And that carried through with me over the years, and and certainly uh, being a part of United Way or um, American Red Cross, I've served on uh, different boards uh, uh, around the country of American Red Cross and been involved in Salvation Army for, gosh, uh, longer than I can remember. Okay. Or, um, um, and at the moment, most of your involvement, I believe, is with uh, the um – National Spasmodic Dysphonia Association, NSDA, is that right? Correct. Yeah, yeah. Uh, before we jump into that, uh, those, uh, maybe uh, switch uh, subjects a little bit. Um, let's let's talk about the subject of investing in particular. Um, t- if we can cover two or three topics here in ten minutes, I'd like to, I'd like to do that. Um, let's start with the with the 
subject of private placements. Okay. okay. And first of all, for our listeners, let me define what I call a private placement. Okay. And a private placement is any investment that you make that you cannot push a button or make a phone call and immediately go to cash. You cannot uh, you, you cannot immediately convert it into uh, liquid assets. So if you if you buy a building, if you invest in a business, if you go into a structured, and there are all kinds of structured or syndicated private placement offerings. I mean, they're just, they're common, okay? But everything like that, private debt between two individuals, private equity between two individuals, whatever that is, that, that falls under my general umbrella of a private placement, mm-hmm. okay? Okay. So you, you just got uh, decades of business experience on uh, within the bail system. Since then, you've done a variety of things from a business standpoint. So um, if, if you were to summarize, talk about two or three things, when it comes to putting money to work, okay, when you're going to stroke a check for, you know, 10000 100000 half million, it doesn't matter what the numbers are, okay? Mm-hmm. But right. if, if you're going to make an investment, private debt, private equity, a structured offering, does not matter. Two or three, you know, non-negotiables or outside of non-negotiables, how do you evaluate? What do you look for as you consider something like that? Yeah, that's a, that's, that's a good topic because, uh, you know, we are all, uh, always looking for opportunities and uh, and in my case uh, with my business background and experience and my personal ingrained experience investing in businesses and and being a part of a business is something that I enjoy so um, I I have experience in investing in some startups and uh, there there are different ways to approach those but I think um, there are two or three fundamentals that apply no matter what your opportunity or what you're looking into, and that is your remember to do your financial due diligence. That's critical, but in my opinion, even more critical is do your due diligence with the people, the person, or the people that you're investing in. Okay. So you understand who they are, what motivates them, what their values and their drivers are and if those are not consistent with your values and how you view business and opportunities and your and your personal ethics and values then you should walk away even if the financial aspect of it looks good good opportunity if you don't feel good about that uh, what you did with your due diligence with the individual or the team running the business, um, I I'm not comfortable with it. So that's something that's uh, that I've always taken into consideration and uh, and looked at. And then of course there's uh, <clears throat> you know there are various ways to invest in opportunities, uh, which a lot of people uh, don't realize that you can use your IRA funds to invest uh, into business or startups or whatever. There are a lot of opportunities to do that, and essentially those are under the umbrella of self-directed IRA. So you you have to do additional due diligence if you're going to use IRA funds. Uh, for example, you really you really need a team behind you. 
if you're going to get involved in a, in a so-called self-directed IRA investment. And first and foremost, you need a financial advisor who has knowledge and experience in self-directed IRAs. And um, that person then can help you put the rest of the team together, which you're going to need an attorney who's well-versed, very knowledgeable in tax law, particularly how it applies to the IRA uh, uh, codes and the requirements in the tax code. And you're probably going to need an attorney who's well-versed in putting operating agreements and so forth in place. So sometimes you might find one person to do all of that, but probably you're going to have to have a couple of people. So the other issue you have to take into consideration if you're doing a self-directed IRA, you have to find a custodian who will do self-directed RAs. Not all custodians um, that handle IRAs will uh, be involved or or handle self-directed IRAs. So you have to put all those pieces in place as well as doing all your due diligence uh, from uh, deciding if it's an investment opportunity you want to pursue. Yeah, there just several several things come to mind as, as I listen to you talk because I, 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 know the, I know the specifics of all these general observations just over the years of things we've done and okay, that worked out really well and let's not do that again and you know, just some, right. some, of, some of that kind of thing. So going back to the private placements and who you do business with, um, you know, I, I remember one scenario that was a there was a private placement, a, a, a business startup, and and the business had a liquidity event about um, seven or eight years into the end. Okay, and when I looked at the return over that seven or eight years, um, honestly, over that seven or eight years, it was in positive territory, uh, but low single digits. But that. Particular when when that business sold it sold to a larger competitor that was publicly traded, and the transaction was uh, in stock. So you ended up with with um, publicly traded stock. Right at a point in a time where that particular sector of the market was poised to take off like a rocket, which it did. So at this point, 15, 14, 13 years in, now when we go back and we evaluate return over that time. So what are the takeaways? Um, in that particular business, I happen to be familiar with the the founder and board chair, and um, the straight arrow. I mean, the man's a straight arrow, and I'd known right, that right. He, he had a solid reputation. Okay, so there was good cultural and values alignment there among the three of us. Okay, um, my observation was everything that he touched turned to gold. He was just one of these incredible people. Mm-hmm. Uh, he just, I mean, he gave. He lived to give. He right. Just just, right. you know, and, and so on and so forth. And and that was not a short, that was completely illiquid for eight years. Right. It just exactly. sort of sat there taking up space on your financial statement. There's nothing you do with it except, I mean, look at it. Yeah, you really can't take the certificates down to Publix and swipe them through that. You, you can't, you know, it's just like, right. you're not going to go home with any groceries, right. you know, that kind of thing. But over 15 years, it's worked out. Right. All right. So, so how do you, so if it doesn't work out, Okay, let's say that, okay, so you buy something and the, the asset deteriorates in value or the investment completely goes away and, or you end up putting a lot of more money into it just to make it a, 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 a 
viable to sell? I mean, what, how do you how do you think about that? Do you do you take notes about okay, here's what I learned, here's learned, whatever? How, how do you approach that? Yeah, good point, and uh, because uh, you're uh, you know you're not going to bat a thousand. Okay. And uh, you know, even in Major League Baseball, if you if you bat three hundred, which is thirty percent, uh, you're considered a superstar. Okay. So good point. Uh, if you if you miss uh, if you miss an investment opportunity here uh, or two along the way over a span of twenty years, uh, hey, you know that's that's uh, that's how things go. As I said, you're not going to bat a thousand. So going into it, you have to have a mindset. And, and a risk tolerance that to recognize that this may not turn out to be a success. Okay. And if it doesn't, then you just you, you look at all aspects of it and say, okay, what did I learn from this? What happened? What did I miss on the front end of evaluation and my due diligence? Okay, and you catalog that and you use that uh, for the next one. Um, and again, it's a case where you, the one that you just referred to was a clear example of investing in people. And as a matter of fact, it was an investment in two key people who were running that business more than investing in the business. And it worked out extremely well. Yes, it did. And, and one of them, the younger of those two, one's, one's you know, of course, the board chairman, he's uh, they, they've they've moved to the coast and but the president he's retired or the CEO's retired but the young man the president mm-hmm. he's in his fifties now and running another organization like that and it just uh, he's doing it again well, I mean the, the, the culture in that location in that entity uh, is just top quality and it's growing and it's profitable and it's the people it's the people and you catalog that and there's an, uh, potentially another opportunity. So you take your learnings and you either uh, say, okay, this one didn't work out uh, as well as I wanted, but here's what I learned from it. You put that to use in the next one. And even if it works out well, you still take uh, what you learned from it. And uh, to your point, uh, I've come to believe over the years that – if you place more faith in and comp- have confidence in the person or the people that you're investing in, that you're going to be successful more often than not. Okay. Uh, obviously, it has to be uh, you know, a reasonable business opportunity. It can't be uh, just something pie in the sky. But the reality in, in my experience has been if you invest in the right people, it's going to pay off for you. Yeah. If you and it's and it's all back around the, the the circle goes around. Treat people the way you want to be treated. Yeah, that's right. I, I will tell you. I remember um, up until about 2004, I thought God's name was Randy Brunson. I mean, I seriously. I mean, I just I pl- please, my friends, if you're listening, please, I, I urge you, uh, don't don't make that approach. It's just so. I've paid a lot of stupid tax, okay? So, but about 2005, I I just needed somebody to talk to. God had made it very clear to me. His name was, was not Randy Brunson. I was not him, okay? So I'm grateful for all those things I learned during that time, but I needed somebody to talk to. I reached out to you in 2005. Right. And a year later, and I'm, I'm typically, if if somebody wants to have a conversation, I'm, I'm typically up for conversation, can have a conversation. 
but about a year later, you said, you know, I think I'd like to join you as a business partner. Mm-hmm. And I was um, dumbfounded, speechless. I mean, I just, it was, it was, it, it's been an honor, a privilege, and we've been business partners now. I mean, you've been a client of our firms for 30 years, but, but we've been business partners for, for 15 years. Yeah, right at 15 years or whatever it is, least, yeah. you know, and, and, and so on and so forth. And I think back, and I know what our numbers were in 2006. Okay, you were not investing in a business; you were making a bet on me. And I honestly, outside of what you've just shared, and I've heard you talk a little bit about it before, I still have no clue, no clue, why you did that. I, I, I really don't. But I, uh, but I'm, I'm just incredibly grateful for it. But I have a uh, but I have a question, not about that. But I do have a question because in the marketplace right now there are some of these uh, mobile apps these mobile mm-hmm. applications that that are designed for uh, they, they are uh, the user interface has a gaming interface right. but they are designed for stock trading or for or for even more buying fractional shares of uh, publicly traded stocks okay right. and this availability is creating some fascinating wrinkles in the market and we don't have time to talk about the fascinating wrinkles in the market we just observe and and attempt to make good decisions in spite of or whatever but i've heard you say before that uh back when paper statements were all the rage from so and so forth that you stuck them in a drawer you shredded them you did whatever but philosophy about how frequently you pull your financial statement and how, how frequently do you evaluate this? Okay, what's the health of the overall financial statement? Yeah, it's, a, it's, it's an interesting point. And, and uh, to preface it, uh, back to your point about some of these uh, potential opportunities perhaps that are out there, I also have a philosophy is if, if I don't understand it, uh, I don't invest in it. It's not my gig. That's for somebody else. And so – those things I don't understand, so that's uh, not not where I play. Not your deal. But um, yeah, I, I feel this way. If if I'm working with the right people, and uh, along the way, we share very similar values, including how we're making investment decisions. Mm-hmm. I don't need to look at my statement every week, every month, whatever. I, I may go sometimes six months and not even look at it. So it's, a, it's where I have confidence that I've made the right decision. And, and uh, really, again, invested in the right person and the right people. So I'm comfortable with that. Yeah. So I don't need to uh, drive myself crazy. Um, you know, looking at the Dow Jones every, you know, 9.30 every morning and see whether it's going up or down. Doesn't matter. Now, I, it doesn't matter. But, you know, I, I keep current with general trends, what's going right. on. Uh, I read a lot, as you know. Yes. Uh, talk to a lot of people, and I try to, you know, catalog most of that stuff in the old brain and say hey okay all right that's something i need to come back to and think about but i don't let it dominate me or drive my life and uh, so that's again part of the decisions that you make up front right yeah it is that that, that's good point the um talk briefly about self-directed iras and we need to wrap up this episode and and we need to i'm going to tie a couple of other things together next in the episode because we need to talk about some other things but the self-directed iras uh yes we have some experience there and you're right part of the reason 
that I wanted to mention that briefly is there are self-directed IRA entities that promote themselves and their services, and it's it's like as far as I'm concerned, a lot of other promotional activities. Mm-hmm. You know, um, if you do this and they have the picture of the beautiful sunset or the beautiful I don't know fill in the blank whatever it is that's attractive to you from a beauty standpoint, but uh, and they make it sound simple and easy and, and these kinds of things. But to your point, first of all. When it comes to income-producing real estate, this is just my observation and conviction. Mm-hmm. Income-generating real estate in and of itself is a tax-efficient asset. Right. Okay. And holding income-generating real estate in an IRA, in a self-directed IRA, where you take physical ownership of through an IRA, destroys the tax efficiency that exists because it converts to ordinary income. Okay? Right. Right. <clears throat> In addition to that, let's say you you own a uh, single-family residential rental inside your IRA. Mm-hmm. Okay, you have not outsourced management. You're the dude that gets a call every time something needs to be done, and so the one of the interior doorknobs breaks. If you swing by the hardware store and just pay for that uh, doorknob set, that lock set, out of your pocket cash or on your personal card. That is considered an IRA distribution. Con- yeah, an IRA distribution. Yep. Right. Uh, that's that. That's exactly what it is. It's considered. Let's see. Let me let me think about this. It's considered an IRA contribution. 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 It's, it's considered right. an IRA contribution. Okay. It's considered an IRA contribution, and if you want cash flow from that IRA for personal spending, right? Okay. It's critical that you have a checking account set up in the name of the IRA, and all business and all activity take place through that and we haven't not even discussed the prohibited transactions right and uh disqualified persons rules as it relates to iras so in general we strongly discourage um using self-directed iras for most things there is a place for them but they're administratively complex there's incredible opportunity for mistakes and errors that are very tax um just generate a lot of t- disqualify the entire thing. Right. It's just right. you have to be really careful with those. So that's it on self uh, self directed IRAs. It is time for us to wrap up this episode. We're going to talk with Charlie Moore on the next episode. But folks, thank you for stopping by. You're welcome to to um, if you want to learn learn more about Centurion Advisor Group. Our website Centurion AG. If you have questions about the discussion today, send us an email info at Centurion AG or go to the contact se- section of our website. Uh, our firm specializes in helping our clients, most of whom own businesses, make intelligent, informed decisions around uh, decisions around things like life, business, and money. How to give well, how to live well, um, and how to put more in your pocket and less in the government's pocket. So that's that's it from us. Our thanks to Gwinnett Business Radio X on this podcast of Stewarding Family Wealth. Thanks so much. Mm-hmm.